Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Well, good morning, Chapel family. Well, just to catch you up in case you are just popping in and you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we need to know a little of this story if you're going to follow along. And so the book of Ruth, as I mentioned, is a beautiful love story set during these dark 400-year period of the judges in Israel. And there was a family of four that we meet in the first verses, and a father, mother, and two sons, and there was a famine in their region. They lived in the little town of Bethlehem, and they decide that they are going to leave this town of Bethlehem, and let's just put it here. There's leave Bethlehem and head down to the land of Moab. It's about 50 miles away. While they were there, the father of this family, Elimelech, he dies. The two sons grew up and they marry, take Moabite wives, wives from that land. But after 10 years, both of them have died. And now the widow Naomi hears that the famine is over back in the land of Israel, back in Bethlehem, and she decides to return back to home. One of her daughters-in-law which is Ruth, follows with her as they head back to Bethlehem. It's been about 15 to 20 years since Naomi left, and the years have been hard on her. They've changed her. She instructs her friends as they come out to greet her. As she comes into town, she tells them no longer to call her Naomi, which means pleasant, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. Naomi has grown bitter at God because of her lot in life. On the other hand, we discovered that Ruth is coming with Naomi as a believer now and a follower of Yahweh God. She is no longer following the gods of the Moabites. Chapter 1 ended with these two widows back in Bethlehem living now in poverty Figuratively, the clouds, as it were, are hanging low when we come to the end of the first chapter and we can feel the weight of their grief and the weight of their desperation. Last week, Pastor Aaron took us through the first half of chapter 2, did a wonderful job, and we saw that the clouds began to lift just a little as Ruth goes out and begins to glean in a field because it's barley harvest time. And we see that God is orchestrating the scene behind the scenes, that God is orchestrating the events. They don't see it yet, but God is. She's gleaning, and gleaning means going around and picking up the bits of grain that have been missed, overlooked by the reapers, or have been dropped by them. And it's what poor people could do in Israel. It was a law. But they go there, that was a way for them to provide for themselves. We met a new character in the story last week, and that is a man named Boaz. Boaz is the owner of the field in which Ruth is gleaning. 
We discovered that he was a man of standing. He was strong. He was wealthy. He was influential. And if they had in those days published a list of Israel's most eligible bachelors, I think Boaz would have been on the top of the list for a few decades. He would have been a good catch, most women would say. But his most striking characteristic, Pastor Aaron pointed out last week, is that Boaz was a godly man. In this ungodly age of the judges, when most of the people are running away from God, doing what they want on their own, disobeying God, Boaz stands out as a godly man. We now have the makings, by the way, of a romance story. Because we have the handsome prince, Boaz, and we have the damsel in distress, Ruth. Again, they don't know this yet, but we do. That's where it's going. But Boaz meets Ruth as she is there working in his field. He asks who this is. They say it's Ruth, and and he calls her over. And he says to her, stay here and glean in my fields only. Don't go anywhere else. Because here you will be safe. My men will take care of you. It was a stark reminder that it was a wicked time. It was an evil time. It was dangerous for a single lady, for a lady on her own to be out there. That was the kind of world it was in the land that was supposed to be God's people and God's land. They were living ungodly. He says, well, when you're thirsty, come over and drink from the water that's been provided for my workers. We ended there in verse 10 of chapter 2, where Ruth asks Boaz this question. She says, you'll notice there, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? That was a great question to ask because more than being just a foreigner, Ruth was a Moabite from the land of Moab. And, and you see, they, the Jews and the Moabites got along with all of the warmth and all of the affection that Jews and Palestinians have today for each other. That's how they got along. And so it was a fair thing to ask, well, why are you being nice to me, a Moabite? Why would he treat her kindly? Well, in the passage today, as we finish out chapter 2, we'll find the answer to that question and hopefully learn a few lessons that will be practical for us along the way. Now, again, we know this is going to turn into a love story. They don't know that yet. And so why is Boaz being kind here to Ruth? Well, it may be because she is really beautiful. Some people say she was a real looker. But we look here at the scripture, you know, and we can't tell that she's a real head turner. It may be true, but it's not in the pages of scripture. So that doesn't account for it. Some say, well, it's just because Boaz is a nice guy. Boaz Boaz would do this for anybody. And maybe he would. We get the sense that he is a kind and generous man. He treats his workers well. We saw last week they greet him with gusto. You know, hey, Boaz, hey. Actually, he didn't say that. They said, the Lord bless you. It's even more important. (laughs) 
A lot of people say, hey! <laughs> they won't say the Lord bless you. They will say other things. Boaz was a nice guy, but there's something else here, I think. Is there something about special about Ruth that gets Boaz's attention? Well, listen as I read the next verses. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, Lord. For you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. She's marveling that even though she's not one of his servants, he's treating her with the, at least the kindness, even more than the kindness that he's giving his own employees. But the first question we might wonder as we read this story is we might wonder, wait a minute, why is Boaz, eligible bachelor, a great catch. Why is he still single? As we'll discover later, he is not a spring chicken. He's an older man. Now, we don't know how old he is. Maybe in his 30s, maybe in his 40s, maybe older. But why is he not married anyway? And the scripture gives us no reason. So we're free to make up our own reason. So my speculation, which I'm sure is right, (laughs) is the reason Boaz is not married is because, as we learned last week, this is a godly man. This is a man of character in the midst of an ungodly and wicked culture. And he simply has yet to meet a woman of the same character a godly lady, and Boaz simply is unwilling to settle for less than that in a wife. He's looking for a godly woman of character. You know, Bethlehem was a small town, not a big place. And I don't know how many of you have lived in small towns, but most of us know, even if we haven't lived in one, most of us know that news travels fast in small towns. Even without telephones and social media, news traveled fast in small towns. And so while Boaz and Ruth just had their first conversations here in these verses, they've just met, Boaz already knows a lot about Ruth because they're in a small town. And Boaz has already learned two very important things about Ruth. Two very important things which in my estimation, in my thinking, these are, and especially for you young folks, these are two things that are critical to note because they are two things that he's learned about her that are two essential qualities for a good marriage prospect. Now, I don't know if he's looking to get married, and I don't, I don't think that there is a romantic interest yet between these two, though it may not take very long for that to develop. 
But he's noticed two things that I would say today for every one of you who is unmarried. Take note, two essential qualities for a good marriage prospect. The first thing that Boaz points out that he's learned about Ruth is that she loves her family well. If you're going to marry someone, you want to know that they love their family well. Ruth cares for her mother-in-law with respect, with loyalty, with sacrifice. In the classic literary work, Cousin Keith's Guide to Court and Spark and Dayton and Finding the Man or Woman of Your Future, which was used for many years here when I was the youth pastor as our text every February, this was the book we would open up and we would study. Cousin Keith says, since I couldn't find a verse that backed this up, <laughs> I decided to quote Cousin Keith. <laughs> Cousin Keith says, if you want to know how a prospective potential husband or wife will treat you, look at how they treat their mom and dad. It was a shocking statement to teenagers. I also put it this way, I'd say, if you want to know how well you will love your wife one day or how well you will love your husband one day, look at how you treat your mom and dad, how well you love them, because you'll tend to love your future spouse the same way. And kids go, no, I, I will never, I, I, no, nothing like that, never, never. The reality, if this person that you think you want to marry is ill-tempered toward their parents, if they are lazy toward their parents or if they are contentious or if they are selfish or any negative things like that towards their parents and their family now, that is how they will tend to treat you when you become their family. Or on the other side, if they are kind toward their family, if they are gentle toward their family, if they are helpful, if they are respectful, if they are loving toward their parents and toward their family, they will tend to treat you that way when you become their family. See, we're, crit we're critters of habit. <laughs> it's exactly why, by the way, I will go to the Scripture, why I think in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, or, is it 12? It's in the Ten Commandments. You get there and, and the commandment says, Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you. You see, if you grow up and you treat your parents with honor, you treat them with respect, you treat them with kindness, you treat them with goodness, you treat them with love, that will carry over into your other relationships later, and most especially when you have your own wife, when, or you have your own husband, when you have your own family. And so learn it while you are young. If you're at home now as a young person, single, learn to love now with the family who is so difficult, with your parents who are so unreasonable, because in reality, you're probably going to marry somebody who's unreasonable and difficult. I know that because they're going to be a sinner. If you learn how to deal with that in grace and kindness and love, now it'll pay off big dividends later. So, just a little advice from Cousin Keith. Yes, people can change, but don't count on it. 
Marry somebody, if you're choosing somebody to marry, marry somebody with a good track record right now rather than hoping that they're going to change later. Okay. Second quality that he noticed in Ruth that is absolutely essential for a good marriage prospect is somebody who not only loves their family well, but somebody who loves God supremely. You know, the Bible warns us as believers in Jesus Christ against marrying unbelievers. Because it's hard to walk through life in unity with someone who doesn't share your foundational beliefs and your priorities. When they have different priorities and different beliefs, it's hard to walk in unity with them. Godly Boaz has taken very careful note that Ruth has come to Israel for something bigger than just to take care of her mother-in-law. Yes, she did that, but there's something bigger. You see, Ruth left her Moabite home and her Moabite gods because she is going to follow the God of Israel. And so Boaz says, may you be blessed by God, Yahweh God, under whose wings you've come to take shelter, to look for shelter. She's come to follow God. We shouldn't marry an unbeliever. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers because what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? The prophet Amos wrote in Amos chapter 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? You know, if you want to go walking with somebody, you can't walk with them if you can't agree what direction to go. If you go this way and they go that way, you're not agreed and you're not walking together. The only way to walk together is to agree. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. By the way, I should also say you shouldn't marry somebody who just gives lip service to caring about Jesus. There's lots of folks who do that. Instead, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should want to marry somebody who is actively and committedly following Jesus. Take those to heart, young people. Write them down. Those two things, absolutely critical. Or any of you old people who are single, still applies. These two qualities are critically important for a good marriage partner. And I couldn't help but noticing as I thought about that, this week that they sound kind of familiar because they sound like Jesus' summary of the law. When he summarized all the commandments, he summarized it in two things. He said all the law and the prophets is summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the characteristics of a godly person. And you should want to marry a godly person because that person is going to make a good marriage partner. Hmm. Romantic interest may not have awakened yet with this couple, but Boaz has certainly noted and Ruth has certainly caught his eye with these two most important qualities. And he tells her right up front when she asks, why are you being nice to me? Well, I couldn't help but notice. You love your family well. And you love God first and supremely. Interesting. At mealtime, she's been working all morning. It's, it's lunchtime. Verse 14. 
At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. When Boaz arrived, we noted last week that his foreman said, when he asked, who is that? So that's Ruth. Said she's been here working really hard, not even taking any breaks. Except just a real quick one to, for just a second. But she's been working hard. And she kept working all the way up till lunchtime. And when that lunchtime came, it's very likely that Ruth didn't have any lunch. I don't think they had anything she could spare. I'm reading between the lines. I think they are literally just barely surviving. She has no lunch. And I think Boaz senses that. And he says, hey, come over here. Join us for lunch. And he offers her the food they've prepared for everyone. Here, have some food. Sit down, eat with the team. I notice not only is he caring about her, and that seems to be, again, Boaz's nature. He's sensitive to people's needs and caring for folks. But I notice that not only is he caring for her, he's eating with his crew. He's eating with his workers. Boaz is not so high and mighty, not so rich, not so aloof that he's over you know, sitting in the shade under a canopy at a big banquet table eating his spread while the workers are out there, you know, eating whatever they've got. He's with the guys eating the food, same food the guys have. No wonder his workers like him. That's the boss we all like, right? Who comes in and mingles with and, and is among his workers. Ruth eats what Boaz gives her. She eats until she's satisfied, and then she took what was left, and there was some left over. We don't know how much, but she takes it and she wraps it up and puts it away. Doggy bags are biblical. Some of us love the leftovers. I do. Later on, though, we're going to see that she doesn't take those, and she's not saving them for her. She's taking them home to give to Naomi, Because she knows mom doesn't have much to eat, maybe nothing. She's always thinking of others. What a pair these are. What a coincidence that they just happen to come together. Of course, we know God is orchestrating all of this. She doesn't linger long after she eats. She very quickly gets back to work. Matter of fact, she obviously goes back to work while everybody else is still eating. Everybody else is still sitting there, and she goes, which is perfect because it gives Boaz a chance to talk to his guys. It also tells us that Ruth, she's just not comfortable just sitting there doing nothing. She needs to get back out. There's much to do. Boaz, as he talks with his reapers and his foremen, he says, now, guys, 
You watch out for this lady. And if she happens to get to a place in the field where she shouldn't go, remember she's a newbie. She hasn't been here before. If she gets into the part of the field she shouldn't get into, even if she gets into the the sheaves, you know, those bundles of barley that are already together and already, you know, she just goes and takes one, you know. (laughs) said, you don't say a word. Nobody rebuke her. Nobody do anything. Let her do it. Matter of fact, any of you who are in front of her, you make sure that every once in a while you grab some of the good stuff that, that uh, is all you've already got, and you just kind of toss it down, like you make it look like you dropped it. <laughs> Keep going. See, again, we learn a lot about this man. Just as God instituted this concept, this law about gleaning to provide for the poor while at the same time not belittling them where they have to live off the labors of others but giving them the dignity of work, the dignity of providing for themselves. Boaz is doing that for Ruth. He's not saying, here, just sit back here in the shade, sit down and, and take it easy and I'm going to have the guys get, get a, you know, a goodie bag here for you to take home. He says, she's come here to work, to earn it, but we're going to make sure she goes home with a bunch, <laughs> with an extra bunch. So guys, you make sure you drop some in her path. What a wise man. What a kind man. And so they did it. In their first conversation, Boaz pronounced a prayer of blessing on Ruth. Did you notice it there in verse 12? He says it to her, but it's really a prayer. May the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Many years ago, I remember hearing a true story about a pastor who had been invited to speak to a ladies' group, a ladies' conference. It was centered around missions. And I think it was a luncheon and meeting and they, they had their thing and then the pastor got up and spoke and when he finished he sat down and one of the ladies got up and she was making some announcements and then she pulled out a letter from, from a missionary and she read this letter to the ladies. The missionary in that letter expressed a need, a critical need they had for what was a sizable amount of money. And then They turned to the pastor and they said, would you please lead us in prayer that the Lord would provide the need for this missionary? And the pastor stood up and he said, now, you all know this missionary? They said, yes. And you know, he's legit. Yeah. And you think this need is really critical and really important that it's met? And they said, yes. And he said, then I won't pray that God meets the need until we've all given what we can. And he took his billfold and he emptied it into a container. It was there and he sent it around. He said, I want you all to do the same thing. Give what you have. And when it went around and he waited and it went around and it came back and somebody looked at it, it was well above what the missionary said they needed. And he said, why would we ask God to provide what he has already provided? And in a similar manner, Boaz, you see, has prayed God's blessing upon Ruth. But he's not content to just pray. 
Boaz sets about to be the answer, or at least part of the answer, to, to Ruth's and Naomi's needs. Now, right now, he's doing it in the means that she has chosen. She's come to work and come to gather, so he's just going to make sure that he answers this prayer and make sure she goes home with plenty. And there's a lesson for us there. The lesson is for us is that we need to pray for those in need and help as we can. See, we are often very good at noticing people's needs. And we often have good feelings toward people. Oh, I feel so sorry for them. I hurt for them that they have that need. And we, we have kind intentions toward them. Somebody ought to help them. Those are good. And it's very good to pray for them. But as James writes, in James 2, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Well, well, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is it if somebody comes in our midst and they are desperately needy, a brother or sister, and we all, oh, wow, that's really bad. And we all gather around, we pray for them, and then we send them home. If we have within us the means to help, what good is that? It is good to have good feelings and kind intentions. It's good to pray we also ought to follow up with action when God has already given us the means to be the answer to their prayer. Verse 17, because that's way too convicting to stay there any longer. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and she went into the city Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, "The, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Ruth worked hard and worked late that day. She worked till evening. She has probably at this point put in a 10 to 12 hour day of work. And yet her day isn't over. She's not done. Now she takes the barley and she threshes the barley, knocking the grain off the stalks. It says when she's done, she has an ephah of barley. That's, depending on the commentators you read, somewhere between a half a bushel and a bushel of barley. And a half bushel, it weighs about 30 pounds. That's enough for them probably to to provide some Uh, food for over a week, maybe two weeks. It was a good day's work. So Ruth, when she gets home, she shows Naomi the, the barley 
She also, oh, 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 and she brings out the, the doggy back. And Naomi probably grabs it and is eating. And Ruth is amazed because she realizes this is not normal. This is not a normal day's gleaning. Somebody has dealt kindly with Ruth. Where were you? Who did this? Ruth says, I don't know, some guy named Boaz. The lunch leftovers to eat that she ate, that Naomi was eating, and that pile of grain brought a sudden change in Naomi. And for the first time in this book, we find Naomi is happy. A smile comes to her face. And Naomi prays a prayer of blessing on Boaz. Blessed be Boaz. May he be blessed by the Lord. And she tells Ruth that Boaz is a close relative. He's one of our relative, our kinsmen, redeemers. Next week we're going to learn why that matters. It's a big part of the story. But Naomi begins to think, is he maybe going to be of some help to us? in our desperate situation. To Naomi's credit, what's changed here is not she's not just happy. Hope just hasn't begun to dawn in her heart because some man showed kindness to Ruth. Hope has begun to dawn in Naomi's heart for something bigger because she says, Blessed be Boaz by the Lord, the Lord who has not forsaken, who has not forgotten the living living or the dead. See, Naomi has spent all this time in despair and bitterness because she knew that God was sovereign, but she had forgotten that God is good. And she has been worrying, she has been Grieving, she has been sorrowful. She has been in despair rather than resting and trusting in God who unbeknownst to her has been at work all of this time working behind the scenes. Let us learn from her failures. Let's learn to trust and to rest in God's providential care. God is sovereign and God is good. He is both. It's a main theme of this book. Even in the darkest of times when when we can't see it, in those times when everything seems hopeless and it seems that God has forsaken us, he has not and it is not hopeless. Our God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even when we can't see it, God is working for the good for his people. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let us always find our joy and our strength in life in God rather than in our circumstances. See, that's where we tend to look. 
When things are going well in life, we're happy and we're, we're good. When things go badly, we get depressed, we get scared, we get worried, we, we get sad, we, and we wonder, why God, why me? And we get bitter against God rather than saying, God, I know you're in control, and God, I know you're good. I don't understand what's going on. I don't like what's going on. But it doesn't change that you're in control, and it doesn't change that you are good. Help me to rest and trust in you, that you are working now to do something better and bigger than I could imagine. May we do that. Lastly, verse 21, And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he, that's Boaz, said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Again, it's bad times. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth and Naomi's short-term needs have now been met through what she's already harvested and what she is going to continue harvesting in Boaz's field. But their long-term needs are still very much in question. You see, there's still two widows who are alone and unprotected in what we are seeing here is a dangerous land. They also have no long-range plan for income. And as we'll see next time, they are apparently facing foreclosure of their property, their home. They're about to lose their one asset. What do you do when your problems are bigger than your resources? When the future is unknown, uncertain, the problems are bigger than you can solve, And you're trusting and waiting on God's providence to solve them. You say, okay, I'm going to wait on God. He's in charge here. What do you do now? Well, the answer is you work hard and do what you can. They still have situations that are out of their control and beyond their means. But what Ruth does is she doesn't sit around doing nothing. Just say, okay, I'm just going to wait on God to provide food. God to work out the situation. She takes advantages of the opportunities that God has placed before her. And she gets to work. And she works hard. It says she worked through the rest of the barley harvest and through the wheat harvest. Translation is she works for six to ten weeks. After this one encounter with Boaz, it doesn't appear there anymore, and she's out there every day working Six to ten weeks of hard labor. They say that God intends for you and for me to be good stewards of all of our resources. Our resource of time, our resource of energy, strength, our resources of goods. And he expects us to be productive with them. Even when we are in difficult times to use what resources we have to be productive. As I look at Scripture, I see that God blesses hard and faithful work. 
Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, we hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. Instead, they're busy bodies. So such people we command and we urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And so you may have bigger situations that you can't address, but what you do is you address the ones you can and leave what you can't address in the Lord's hands and seek him first. We saw that back the first week. As Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added. You don't need to worry and fret, but it also means we're not idle. We're busy doing what we can. There's only one place where our labor is useless and valueless. And that's regarding our salvation. See, none of us can earn forgiveness from sin. None of us can earn heaven instead of hell. The Bible could not be clearer. Those can only be received as a gift from God. The Bible says we receive that as a free gift from him when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. If you're here today or watching online and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, I urge you, I beg you to do that today. If you have questions about that, come talk to me. Call me if you're online. Call the church. Email us. I'd love to share with you what it means to know Jesus as your Savior. Next week, come back. We'll learn about this thing, this kinsman redeemer thing. And it's a really cool part of the story. So I hope you'll be here next time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons here. I I hope that Some of this, really all of it, is beneficial to all of us. Very practical things. Father, the reality is many of us, most of us, struggle from time to time to trust your goodness, to rest in your providence. Some of us sometimes struggle with laziness. May we be challenged here from your word. Father, reality, sometimes we struggle with generosity. We're real good at feeling for people, but not very good at doing for others. May we be generous with the resources that you've given to us. Father, may you be with our young people. May you help them to marry well. Godly spouses, where together they build godly homes and raise godly children. May you be with our homes and marriages where there is difficulty and struggle. Father, may you convict of sin where it needs to be convicted. May you change us that we might live in our homes as you have called us to be as men and women of God. Father, bring about these changes in us both for our good but more importantly for your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.